1986, a professor named Nancy Mayer, she wrote a an famous essay, and it was titled On Being a Cripple. Okay, it was a reflection of her experience as a woman who had been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and had grown to be more and more disabled over time. It's a pretty famous and poignant essay, and it captures kind of a whole range of perspectives about this uh, situation that she found herself in, from anger to appreciation to humor uh, to sadness. And there's one thing that she wrote in the essay, which is, again, entitled On Being a Cripple, which caught my attention. It was her decision to use the word cripple to describe herself. And this is what she wrote. I am a cripple. I choose this word to name me. I choose from among several possibilities, the most common of which are handicapped and disabled. I made the choice a number of years ago without thinking, unaware of my motives for doing so. Even now, I'm not sure what those motives are, but I recognize that they are complex and not entirely flattering. People, crippled or not, wince at the word cripple. Perhaps I want them to wince. You know, if you think about what Nancy Myers is saying, it's true, right? We don't all maybe experience the same sort of physical problems that someone with multiple sclerosis does, but we can empathize with the idea that sometimes when people are faced with brokenness, they wince. They're kind of taken back. It makes them a little bit uneasy. An honest, straightforward recognition of brokenness in the world is not often easy for us to see and deal with. And yet, people who have been crippled, people who are broken, people who are disabled, they show up in the scriptures a lot. I don't know if you knew this. If you read through the Bible, you'll see that in the pages of the Bible, in the Old and New Testament, over and over again, you'll find stories of people like this. And our passage today in 2 Samuel is one as well. You can turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 9. We're reading a story in our series through the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, a story about a man who is crippled. We're going to start beginning in verse 1 and go through the whole chapter together. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show him the kindness of God? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. The king David sent and brought him from the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. 
So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. This is the word of the Lord. What do we learn from this story? Right? What do we learn from a story like this about this crippled man named Mephibosheth? Well, I think it's simple, and I want to keep it kind of simple this afternoon. Like so many stories of crippled people in the Bible, we'll see in this passage how this broken man had his life changed through the steadfast love of God. So that's what we're going to see in this passage, how this broken man had his life changed by the steadfast love of God. And we're going to see that as we break down the passage into three parts. First, the inquiry. Second, the invitation. And third, the inclusion of the cripple at the table of the king. So let's begin by looking again at the passage, the first four verses, where we see in this story the inquiry. The inquiry that shows us the extent of steadfast love. Now, to get you guys up to speed, recently in the book of 2 Samuel, uh, what we've seen is kind of summary chapters. So in 2 Samuel 7, that was an important chapter where the Davidic covenant was given to David, where God promised to, to have a descendant of David rule forever. Now, around that chapter, there are these summary chapters that kind of give the overall kind of flavor of David's rule, what it was like when David was king. It covers kind of the whole gamut of his time as the leader of Israel. But here in chapter 9, we finally get back into the weeds, so to speak, and have a proper story, which is why I like these books, a story that gets into the details that is very real and human. It shows us relationships and how people respond to one another, and there's nothing more compelling than a story that is true. So here's how the story starts. David is sitting around one day. In verse 1, he has a question. Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? After all his rule has been established, after he's been made king in Jerusalem, after he has no more rivals, no more wars that he has to think about in the moment, no more confusion, no more civil war or anything like that, David is at peace and with his mind freed up, he he thinks and he wonders, whatever happened to the house of Saul? Now, when we say the word house, we mean the family of Saul, obviously, right? The, The family of Saul. And specifically, David wants to know whether there is anyone left so that he might show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Now we need to hit pause here because the word kindness is absolutely key to this entire chapter. What is the word translated as kindness in our English Bibles? Well, it's one of those Hebrew words that we've talked about a lot at Zoe. So if you've been here for a while or not at all, maybe if you're new, I'm going to tell you what it is. It's not shalom, which is one of the words we love to talk about. It's the other Hebrew word hesed. We always talk about Hesed, which is God's steadfast love, his loving kindness, his covenant faithfulness. That's what the word kindness here means. See, this word, if you're reading your Bible, it's an incredibly important word. Hesed. It's a word that I said is translated sometimes loving kindness in the old King James Version. Steadfast love often, covenant faithfulness. And this is what this whole passage is really about. How this individual will have his life changed in ways he could never foresee because he experiences hesed. But for us to get there, we need to understand a little bit better what the term conveys. Right? There are these translations, these words kindness, they don't quite capture the whole essence of hesed. I think that perhaps the closest term that we have in English that would really translate for us in 2022 what hesed means is not any of those other translations, but the term unconditional love. 
unconditional love. Now, there are some technicalities to that, obviously, right? If I talk about unconditional love, there are some conditions, right? Like, you have to exist for me to love you, right? I have to have, like, a functioning brain, right? My kids can't, like, murder one another and, and expect unconditional love. But the sense of unconditional love, when we use that word in everyday vernacular, when we talk about having unconditional love, it touches on the feeling, the reality, the idea of hesed. Let me illustrate for you. If you are a parent and your kids have begun to talk, do you remember the first time that your child lied to you? Remember, you, could, you, you saw them in a different light, right? Uh, and, and that they were lying to you and they were trying to cover things up, you, you kind of saw that, that they were scared of you. And so if you're like me, you sat the child down. You sat him down and you said, listen, whatever thing that happened, whatever bad thing that you think you did, whatever problem you think might come of it, you have to know that I will always love you. Right? No matter what you do, I will love you. That whatever bad thing happens, I will be on your side. I want to help you no matter what happens. That's Hesed. That's unconditional love. It's not about a contract, right? It's not about you scratch my back, I scratch yours. Think about how you love your children, how most people love their children. It is a committed, covenantal love. It says, I'm committed to your good. I'm on your side. I am for you. That will not change. And this is what kindness, hesed, means. And this is what stirs up David to action, to inquire about the family of Saul. See, in the ancient Near East, when people became a new king, when someone went into power as the king, they would go and they would kill the family of the previous king. Right? It's kind of like how lions do that now. If a lion takes over a pride, he goes and kills all the little lions that were left from the past lion. Because this is kind of what, what people did. They just wanted to solidify their power. But the author tells us that David is interested in inquiring about Saul's family, not for killing, but for kindness. To show Hesed to the family of Saul for the sake of Jonathan, his old friend. Now look at verse 2. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. They called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. The king said, Is there still not someone of the house of Saul, that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. So Ziba is, is a guy who worked for Saul. He managed his household, maybe. He's kind of his steward, so to speak. And David finds him, and he asks him, and he finds out that there is someone left, and he is a son of Jonathan. Now, we haven't heard much about Jonathan for a few chapters, but we need to kind of pull back the, the, the curtain and, and recap what has happened. Approximately 20 years earlier, before David went on the run from King Saul, before David became king, before any of that, Jonathan and David were best friends. If you guys remember the story, what happened was David was um, brought to Saul, after he had killed Goliath, right? This man of faith had fought and defeated the giant. And when he goes to Saul to kind of be rewarded, Jonathan sees him and their hearts are knit together because they have the same faith in the Lord. So Jonathan and David are close friends about 20 years before this. Jonathan knew that David would be the next king. And so even though he was the prince, he made a covenant with David. Jonathan promised to help David and David in turn would care for Jonathan when he became king if Jonathan were alive and would care for his family. He would show, according to the promise they made in 1 Samuel 20, the kindness of God to Jonathan. And so Ziba tells him, 
that Jonathan, your old friend, has a son. And this son is living in Lodabar, and this son is a cripple. Now, in First Samuel or Second Samuel chapter four, we've heard about the son. When he was a child and Saul and Jonathan died in battle, his nurse kind of took him and fled from where Saul was living. And at some point in that whole process, the son fell down. Maybe he fell down a flight of stairs or, or down a ravine or something, and he became crippled in his feet. He was unable to walk. Verse, tells us, verse 4 tells us that as David continues to inquire about him, he finds out that this son is far away. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. So where is Lodabar? It's as far from David as you can be. Okay, if, if you don't know the ancient Near East, like Israelite geography, that's fine because I don't either. I have to look it up on Wikipedia. That's just what you got to do sometimes to study the Bible. Lodabar is in the boonies of Israel. It's far away. It's out of sight, out of mind. The name Lodabar literally could mean nothing. No word. It could mean nothing. So probably it was a place that was productive before. It wasn't as productive now. It had gone through some hard times. And so here's the picture. David inquires about Saul's family. He wants to show kindness to someone for the sake of Jonathan. And he discovers that there is someone left, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan who is crippled, who is far away, living in small town Israel, under the charity of another, totally out of sight and out of mind. What can we learn from this passage? Well, we can start with this. From David's inquiry after many years, decades, about a family that he hasn't thought about or heard about for quite some time, in light of a promise that he made, again, decades ago, about a man who is living far away in the boonies of Israel, we see the extent of hesed. We see the extent of steadfast love. We see the extent of loving kindness. And we see the lengths that that love is willing to cover. You see, Hesed, the, the steadfast love of God, the kind of love that reflects who he is and what he does, it transcends the limits of what we think is reasonable, of distance and of time and, and even of effort. For David to show the kindness of God, all of those things would be no obstacle. Because that's what Hesed is like. And so David inquires about showing kindness, the kindness of God to the, God to the family of Saul. And when he discovers what it will require. It goes beyond where we might naturally think it would or should. What do you guys think about when you think about the kindness of God? It's a good question for Christians. Right? We, we believe that God loves us. We, we think that we have a relationship with the creator of the universe. What do you think when you hear about the kindness of God? Is it just that he has good feelings towards you? A sunny disposition? What do the scriptures actually say? It's much deeper, more powerful, and significant than that. Or when we talk about the gospel message that Jesus Christ died for sinners who were far away from God, who were separated from him because of our sin, who, who were set against him in our disobedience, when we tell someone then that God loves you, and we tell ourselves that God loves us, this is the most incredible thing. That has said that, that God's loving kindness could be for people like you and me shows us the extent of God's kindness and love. 
that it covers more and it goes beyond what we think. That God's hesed extends even beyond what we might imagine. And that takes us then to how David goes about showing this hesed as we see in verses 5 through 8, the invitation. So we saw the inquiry. Next we see the invitation that shows us the comfort of steadfast love. After he hears about Mephibosheth, David issues an invitation. And we see it starting in verse 5. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, at Lo-Debar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. So for us to understand what's going on, we've got to start with some of the basics. First of all, what does Mephibosheth mean? Right? We already talked about what happened to him, why he is, is lame in both feet, uh, kind of the, the bad thing that happened in his life early on. But what does Mephibosheth mean as a name? Well, first of all, you need to know that this probably wasn't his actual given name. Okay, Mephibosheth probably was not the name that he was given by his father, Jonathan, when he was born. Mephibosheth means from the mouth of shame. That's what it means in Hebrew. And if it sounds like a weird name to give someone, it is, right? Because you wouldn't want to call someone from the mouth of shame. The reason why his name is given as Mephibosheth from the mouth of shame in the book of 2 Samuel is that Mephibosheth comes from a shamed family. His uncle is called Ishbosheth, which means man of shame. And again, his name was not given as man of shame, but because he was the son of Saul, the rejected king, because he was in rebellion and, and fought in the civil war with David, he's called Ishbosheth. And so this word Bosheth, shame, it's in both their names because the family of Saul is shamed. And so it's not about him being shamed because of his disability or anything like that. No, he is a man of shame because of his family. If you don't understand what that's about, you can watch uh, Mulan. It'll give you a kind of a a quick primer in how to shame your family or bring them honor. I don't know. David, he finds out about Mephibosheth, this guy from the mouth of shame. Mephibosheth comes before him out of Lodabar from a shamed, rejected kingship and family. And I imagine it would have been a scary thing. Can you guys just imagine for a moment really being in those shoes? Really imagine being... Mephibosheth, okay? Five years old, you find out that your dad and your granddad, the king and the prince, have died. They pick you up and they just run away. And in the process, you, you become disabled. Right? You, you suffer this horrible situation. And now you've kind of grown up like this, right? And the charity of someone else, you don't know what's going on, but you kind of hear things come in over time from the, the main part of Israel that David now has become the king. And not along with that, you also hear that, by the way, your uncle was killed in his sleep, and his head was given to King David. Okay, that's what you maybe heard in the grapevine. That's what happened in earlier chapters. Mephibosheth doesn't know really the details of what's going on, but he knows that the family of Saul is no longer in good graces. And he's brought before the king. It must have been scary. must have been nerve-wracking. So when Mephibosheth comes to David, the text says he falls down and pays homage. He bows and he prostrates himself on the ground before David. And it's not just respect. It's fear, I think. It's insecurity. There's ignorance about what exactly David wants. What's he going to do to him now? And so I love what happens next in the story. I love that when the story gets into the details, it shows us something that just is so real and human. David sees him lying on the ground. And what does he say? He just says his name, Mephibosheth. 
It's an unusual greeting. It's not the normal way people greet one another, okay? And especially not in the Bible, even in the book of Samuel. It's not a question. It's an exclamation. Mephibosheth. It's something good. And one of the things that I most enjoy about weddings, um, when I get a chance to go to them, is that people often give um, slideshows at their wedding. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Where people will do a slideshow of the bride and the groom, and it shows when they're growing up, how they were babies, and how they got together, and, and all that. And I love the beginning of the slideshows because I get to see that the bride and groom, they look exactly like their parents, right? <laughs> when their parents were, were young, and they had them, and they were babies, they look exactly the same. And then I also see that the bride and groom look exactly like baby versions of themselves, just bigger, right? You kind of have the same face your entire life. So sorry to break that to you kids, but, but you get what you get, and you don't get upset. Um, you look at these people, and I think as we, we look at the story here, just, just to kind of bring a reality to it, David sees this guy in a pitiful state, fearful and prostrate before him. You know, maybe he sees the face of Jonathan, his friend, and his son. Maybe he remembers little three-year-old Mephibosheth right, running around on those two good legs back when he was still in the palace of Saul. And so he just says his name almost as if, Mephibosheth, is that really you? It's so good to see you. It's a warm welcome. It is a warm invitation. It's not anger. It's not judgment. It's not condemnation. This crippled man who was full of fear comes before the king and he prostrates himself. He expects the worst. And instead he hears his name and an invitation to experience hesed. How do we know that from fear? Not just from the word Mephibosheth. Look at verse 7. David said to him, do not fear. He could tell that Mephibosheth was scared. Do not fear. I will show you kindness. There's the word again. For the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he, that's Mephibosheth, paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? David says, do not fear. Why? Well, it's not just because he recognizes Mephibosheth from before, because he intends to show him kindness, hesed, steadfast covenantal love. See, the invitation of Mephibosheth to receive kindness from David shows us not just the extent of steadfast love, but the tremendous comfort that comes with it. The ability to take someone from insecurity to security, from anxiety to peace, from fear to faith, from shame to comfort. David will not kill him. Far from it. He says, for the sake of your father Jonathan, I will restore you the land of Saul and you will eat at my table always. But you're going to receive something good. You're going to get something that you weren't expecting. You're going to be invited into something better than you could have imagined. You were living in the middle of nowhere with no way to work the land, relying on the charity of maker who was a charitable man. But now, Receive from the king steadfast love. You have no need to fear. You will be comforted. You will be taken care of. You will be invited in. The English equivalent for hesed is unconditional love because it's the kind of love that is of a different category than what we deserve. You guys know that, right? You guys have experienced this. Maybe hopefully you have in your life. Someone who has loved you in a way that you know you don't deserve, and you could never deserve. But it's categorically different. 
As Hess said, it goes beyond the bare minimum of what we owe someone and becomes an invitation to experience something far better than just living out your days in fear. It's interesting that Mephibosheth, he talks about himself and he says, who am I that you would show favor to a dead dog like me? He calls himself a dead dog. Now, when you think about that, obviously the terminology is kind of gross in and of itself. And dogs in those days, they weren't like the cute puppies of social media nowadays. They weren't pets. Okay, that's what you got to know. They didn't keep dogs as pets back then. Dogs were just running around and they were kind of causing problems. I remember listening to uh, Michael Thompson, the old Laker uh, color commentator and center from the 80s. And he would talk about how growing up in the Bahamas, he hated dogs because when dogs came around, they just tried to nip at you and bite you and steal your food, right? So that's kind of what it's like in Israel. People didn't keep dogs as pets. To be a dead dog was really to say, I am nothing. I, I don't deserve anything. I didn't expect anything. Nobody really wanted me around. Mephibosheth knew that he had no claim on the mercy of David. He knew that in other circumstances, he could have expected death upon being invited to see the king And yet, steadfast love is what he receives. And again, this is a picture for us of the gospel. We deserve condemnation. We deserve time. We are dead dogs, so to speak, in our flesh, separated from God, enemies of him. And everyone who has ever seen the power of God in the Bible, their natural response is to fear him to be afraid, to to be confronted by his holiness and righteousness. It is a crazy thing to imagine and to experience. Before God, we are far worse than dead dogs, and yet Christ died for sinners. He took the punishment for us. He made atonement for us with God. And for those who have believed in him, we have been shown, Hesed, we have been shown kindness. David, as the king, points us forward to Christ. And this scene is no exception. Right? It's not just for salvation, but for life itself. That we as Christians can be invited to experience the hesed, love of God, and the comfort that comes with it. You know, when I read this story, just on an application level, I think so many people struggle with fear in this life. So many people are just full of anxiety. And I I'm like that too. Sometimes things happen and I don't expect it. I think, you know, I'm kind of over it and something will kind of come unexpected into my life and all of a sudden that anxiety hits again, right? You guys probably know what I'm talking about. From what I can tell online, it looks like people in the past 10 years leading up to the pandemic had kind of doubled in their, their kind of um, reporting of experiencing anxiety. I can only imagine what's happened in the three or four years since. Right, with COVID and lockdowns and inflation and possible recession, I don't know, I'm reading all sorts of things online. There are reasons to be anxious, plenty of them. But you guys know that as Christians, and this is going to sound trite maybe, as Christians, there are reasons to be anxious, but there are reasons to be comforted as well. There are always reasons to be comforted when you understand the loving kindness of God. Chief among them is the reality that you and I have received from God undeserved steadfast love. You see, steadfast love, has said, especially in the face of fear, brings us the greatest comfort. Right? Like that child who has lied because they've done something terrible, something that maybe he never expected to do, and he goes to his parents and he hears the words, I love you and I will make things right. And even if you did something wrong, we will try to to do what we need to do to make this right together. That changes the game, doesn't it? 
It brings comfort that maybe you weren't even expecting. And so it is with us as Christians that whatever might cause us to fear, whether it is the things in this world or even the things that we have done, we can go to our Heavenly Father and hear in his loving kindness comfort. Doesn't mean that our anxieties just disappear. Of course not, right? They don't just poof like into thin air. But what do we fill our mind with? What do we believe is actually true? Do we spend our time listening to all the pundits in the world talking about everything that you need to worry about? Because that's what they do. If you read the news, if you go scrolling through your feed, if you want to watch something for a little bit, they're going to tell you explicitly, these are the things that you need to be afraid of. And maybe they are important. The Bible tells us that we don't need to fear anything but God. And for those who have experienced his hesed, well, then we can actually approach him without fear, but in love and comfort. Of all the things that we might fear in this world, the comfort that we need is found in the steadfast love of God. Titus 3, 4 through 7. Paul says, When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration, and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And this transition of how receiving loving kindness leads to us being heirs really points us to the last part of this passage in Second Samuel. We've seen the inquiry, we've seen the invitation, finally, And lastly, we see in this story the inclusion of Mephibosheth at the table of the king. The inclusion that shows us the relationship of steadfast love. Look at verse 9. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. As Mephibosheth receives the steadfast love of God through David, he is blessed with not just stuff, but a relationship. And as we read these verses, we kind of see that, okay? If you you look at them, he says that he gets back all the land that used to belong to Saul, his grandfather. Now, Saul, if you don't recall, he came from a very rich family. The family of Kish owned a lot, so they had a lot of land. But after the kind of fall of Saul's reign, it kind of went into disrepair. Ziba was just kind of manning it for himself. So Mephibosheth gets that back. He gains servants, right? He gains help. He gets Ziba and his family to kind of help him and watch over the land now for his sake. He was once a charity case in the house of Maker who, again, was a good guy, but now he's going to have his own servants. He's going to be able to be sufficient on his own with his own land and helpers. But I've called this point the inclusion because the truth is the land and the servants and the stuff that he gets is not the most important thing. It's not the best thing that Mephibosheth receives. What is the emphasis of these verses? If you look at them four times, the verses repeat the phrase, he shall eat at my table. 
Four times it's repeated. This is what David says. Mephibosheth will get all this stuff. Yeah, that's great. But four times he shall eat at my table. He will be included at the table of the king. Now, the word for a table is just like a dining table, you know, a meal table. Um, But it's not about food, okay? Mephibosheth has food. The text makes it clear. He has food to eat. Look at verse 10. He has food. He's going to have produce. He's going to have stuff from the land. He's going to have bread to eat. So what is it about the king's table? It's about the relationship. The inclusion of Mephibosheth at David's table shows us the relationship of steadfast love that Hesed is not just about physical goods. It's not about doing tasks for one another. It is ultimately, primarily about a relationship. It is a personal kindness and commitment and love for another. Look at verse 11. It's right there. Ziba says they're going to do everything that David asks. The author tells us that Mephibosheth ate at the king's table, and he adds a little phrase, like one of the king's sons like a son of the king, like part of the family, right? As the great theologian Olive Garden said, when you're here, you're family. Now, in all seriousness, being included at the table means being part of the family. You know that. That's why it's such an intimate thing to be invited to someone's home for dinner. That's why when you buy a dining table, you never buy one that has one less seat than the number of people in your family. That's just wrong. Four times Mephibosheth is said to be included at the table. Four times the Holy Spirit wants us to recognize that this orphaned son of the prince, this orphaned grandson of the rejected king from a family of shame has become, as it were, adopted into the family of King David. Now, adoption, it doesn't happen a lot in the Old Testament, okay? You'd be surprised to know that adoption is not really something that happened a lot in Israelite um, culture. Part of that was because every family was supposed to take care of their own, right? You're supposed to keep things in the family. And so there were really a lot of structures in place to care for someone who, who kind of lost uh, their immediate family. But we do see adoption a few times, right? We see it actually outside of the nation of Israel. We see um, the princess of Egypt adopt Moses. We see um, in Babylon, Mordecai adopt Esther to take care of her as his daughter. But still, the concept of adoption, even if it wasn't legally done that often, it shows up here. Right? David takes this guy who really is the grandson of his enemy, and he adopts him into the family like one of his sons. Now, David's covenant with Jonathan, if you go back and you read it, it never required this of him. He never promised that I would adopt one of your sons into the palace of the king, to let him eat at the table like one of my sons. It didn't require any of those things, but David shows us that the steadfast love of God goes above and beyond and includes us if we have eyes to see into something extraordinary. Now, just to bring it to us as a church, I think this should affect how we view ourselves and the family of God. Because even if adoption wasn't often practiced In the Old Testament, the New Testament, man, adoption shows up a lot. Not physically, per se, but spiritually, that we have been adopted into the family of God, that we are now children of God and brothers and sisters with one another. The Bible says 
that in Christ we have been adopted into this family. This past week I was reminded of my friend who used to live in New York, but he moved back to Dallas. Um, And he told me how when he was living in New York, I think I've talked about this before, in in such a secular society and a world that always felt like it was attacking his faith, he, he felt like he needed to be at church among the people of God to feel a refuge from kind of the the, the harsh reality of people being set against him ideologically, right? People who, who, who didn't believe scripture, people who hated Christianity and hated Christ. He needed to be in the church as a refuge from the world. And yet, he said, when he moved back to Texas, he no longer felt that way. He didn't feel ideologically cornered. People were okay with Christianity, right? People thought it was pretty cool that he was a Christian. It wasn't really a bother to them. And I understood what he meant, that maybe he didn't see it as much as a refuge. But brothers and sisters, we need to understand that the way that God views the church is not simply as a refuge from the world. Okay? The way that God views the church is not simply a refuge from the world. Whether or not the outward culture is full of atheists or, or, or cultural Christians, the church may or may not feel like a refuge. But even if it does or does not, it should feel like a home. Now, that sounds kind of like touchy-feely, mushy, right? Like, oh man, I feel like so happy to be here. It is, but it's not only that. What is a good home? It's not just a place of warm feelings. It's a place where we're committed for one another's good. Where we love one another, where we bear with one another, where we encourage and correct one another, where we rejoice together and we weep together. We do all these things to one another because it is a place of hesed. The hesed we have received from God being lived out with one another. And this should not be the exception, but the rule. That when we gather with the church, we're coming together with the family of God because we have together experienced his loving kindness. Now, I admit that it's a struggle, okay? I know, like, that's kind of pie in the sky, like, that's what we want, but it's a struggle, And I admit that just because the Bible says we're brothers and sisters doesn't always make me feel that way about people right off the bat. And I admit that oftentimes when someone calls me their brother, it's because they forgot my name, right? This is just how it works in the church. But I imagine that adoption isn't easy, right? I imagine that that bringing someone into your family who, who wasn't part of your family before, it's not always the most natural thing. And yet it's so good. And that's why the picture of adoption is so appropriate. I've never met someone who said adoption, man, that's a walk in the park. But if we have been adopted in Christ into the family of God, then we ought to live the kindness of God towards one another as members of his family. Let's look at the final verses together. Verse 12, Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. In summary, the author tells us that Mephibosheth's life was changed, that through the hesed of God that David showed him, though fallen and broken, though lame in both his feet, he was raised up to a high place, the table of the king. Now this picture of the table. It's interesting. Take your Bibles with me if you have them or your phones. Go all the way to the beginning, okay? Genesis chapter 2. So, second page of your Bibles. 
Verse 15, after the Lord makes Adam, even before he makes Eve, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat it you shall surely die. First thing he tells Adam is to eat. Go to the last page of your Bibles, all the way to the end. Revelation chapter 22. One of the last things he says, verse 17 of Revelation 22, the spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. See, from the very beginning, God tells us to eat. At the very end, he says, come all who are thirsty and drink. And so if you didn't know, get this, this book, right, this long, ancient, holy book, it's the invitation of God to a broken world to receive hesed from him, to come and dine at his table. What did Jesus do on the night he was betrayed? He sat at table with his disciples. He said, this is my body and this is my blood. Take and eat and drink for the forgiveness of sins. The standing invitation that we have and that a broken world has to be forgiven and healed and included at the table of the king. That's what the relationship of Hesed looks like. An inclusion for the orphan Mephibosheth to join up with David's family and his sons. An inclusion for us, orphaned in our own brokenness in every way, in our own sin to be brought into the family of God, to partake in the great banquet of his joyful presence now in the church and forever in eternity. So how do we land this plane? What do we glean from this story? I said early on that like many stories of people who are disabled and handicapped in the Bible, what we see is the power of God's steadfast love to transform their lives. And that's what we see here, right? Mephibosheth, a man who received from David the hesed of God, so that his life was forever changed. It's a beautiful picture of God's steadfast love to us. And as David points us to Christ, we should see ourselves like Mephibosheth, right? Recipients of grace, just as Mephibosheth received from David this steadfast love. We've received those things from the Lord. We've come from nowhere with nothing rejected and forgotten to restored and renewed and refreshed at the table of the king. God loves us with headset love. That's what we need to see from 2 Samuel 9. He loves us and he wants to transform us through his steadfast love. But if we stop at simply having received the love of Christ, then we've only gone part way. What did the Bible say, right? Freely you have received, so freely give. As the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive others. To whom much is given, much will be required. But what we have seen and experienced and received from the Lord, we ought to give to one another. God has taken us broken and fallen, lifted us up in Christ. And so we have every reason in the world, every reason in the universe, to see the needs of others, to lift them up with the Hesed love of God.
One of the last observations that Nancy Mears in her essay made, uh, the essay I quoted earlier, is how in her experience of being a self-described cripple, as uncomfortable as it was, it brought into her life something maybe unexpected, that, that she wasn't sure was there before. It gave her a gift. And as she put it, her own weakness led to her discovering a new gentleness inside of her. An ability to see the, the, the brokenness and frailty that she saw in her own life mirrored everywhere in the world around her. And a desire to respond to that reality with kindness. And that's really it. What do we do with this story of a broken person? We don't wince at it. We don't close our eyes. We don't ignore it. But we embrace the truth of brokenness. We embrace the amazing reality of God's steadfast love. When we see what we have received, when we see Hesed, and we open our eyes to those around us, that we might inquire after broken people, that we might invite them into covenant love of God, and that we might include them forever in the fellowship of his table. Let's pray. Father God, we ask for you to help us, even now, Lord, to truly understand the incredible truth of your steadfast love. God, we hear it so much. We know it. If you've been in church at all, Lord, we, we, we've we could say it a hundred times that Jesus loves me, this I know. And yet oftentimes we don't really believe it. We don't really know it. We don't really understand the great cost of what it means for you to love us and forgive us and adopt us into your family. And so we pray, Lord, that in this time of worship, as we respond to you, as we respond to your word, that you would help us to exalt Christ. For in him we have seen and received your loving kindness, which has appeared for the forgiveness of our sins, the good of your people, and the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.